Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Hallelujah. Shabbat shalom. As you know, we're in a uh, lengthy series on the book of Proverbs. Today's part 15, about halfway through maybe. (laughs) We're going to look today at the theme of a wounded spirit. So turn with me, uh, and we actually have various passages in Proverbs we're going to look at today, from Proverbs 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 18, 28. So this whole series up on, on the over, overhead here of verses from Proverbs. And, and uh, the word says this, An anxious heart weighs a man down, but a kind word cheers him up. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, uh, but longing fulfilled is an etzchayim, is a tree of life. Each heart knows its own bitterness, and no one else can share its joy. Even in laughter, the heart is sad, and the end of joy is grief. A tranquil mind gives life to the flesh, but passion makes the bones rot. The tongue that brings healing is a tree of life, but a deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. A happy heart makes the, the face cheerful, but heartache crushes the spirit. The discerning heart seeks knowledge, but the mouth of the fool feeds on folly. All a man's ways seem innocent to him, but the motives are weighed by the Lord. A man's spirit sustains him in sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? The wicked man flees, though no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Amen. Today we're going to look at what the, what the book of Proverbs says about our inner being, uh, our, our psyche, uh, our soul, our, our mind, our will, our emotions. And at times we all have struggles dealing with and understanding uh, the deep uh, and conflicting and confusing and powerful and sometimes warring dynamic impulses of feelings and passions and emotions that boil up and roll through our heart. Sometimes we feel powerless. In the face of these emotions, we don't know where these feelings come from or what to do with them. Well, the book of Proverbs addresses these issues of, of the inner life. I'll look at uh, this, this issue under four headings on the overhead. Uh, number one, the priority of the inner life. Number two, the complexity of the inner life. Three, the solitude of the inner life. And number four, how to heal a crushed spirit. So first, the priority of the inner life. Look at Proverbs eighteen fourteen. A man's spirit sustains him in sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? Now, what does this word spirit mean uh, in this context? As you know, the Hebrew word uh, for spirit, ruach, also is the same word for breath or for wind. And it typically has to do with, with force, uh, with power, with energy. When it refers to your inner self, the spirit within you, uh, your human spirit, it's akin to what we call, would call today emotional energy or, or passion for life. Uh, that which propels us out into life, uh, makes us want life, makes us want to take it on uh, and navigate uh, and deal with life. On the overhead, so if that's what a spirit is, what is a crushed spirit? A crushed, so uh, to have a crushed spirit is to look out at life and have no desire for it. Uh, have little or no joy in it. Uh, there's no passion to pursue it, to deal with it. And there are degrees of a crushed spirit. 
It could be anywhere from listlessness uh, and, and restlessness to discouragement, to despondency, uh, to being very cast down, to despair and losing all desire for life. Now, now what is this proverb saying? Uh, a crushed spirit, who can bear? It's saying there's nothing more important than maintaining your inner being. Look again, look again at Proverbs 18 and 14. A man's spirit sustains him in sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? It's saying a broken body can be sustained by a strong spirit. But a crushed or broken spirit can never be carried or or sustained by even the strongest body. We're all obsessed with this idea that our happiness is determined by our external circumstances. Uh, That our happiness is determined by whether or not our body's healthy and looks good, uh, whether we have money, whether people are treating us well, whether things are going well out there. That's what we think makes us happy or, or unhappy. But the Bible says no. It has ultimately nothing to do with your outward circumstances. But rather, happiness is determined by how you deal with your circumstances from within. How you process and address uh, and view view them. Uh, That's the reason why Proverbs, for example, the reason why Paul's prayers for for the congregations he's writing to never actually deal with asking the Lord to relieve them of their outward circumstances. When you start to think about this, Paul's prayers, what he actually prays for, for the congregations, it's amazing. And it's so different from our prayers, aren't they? Because our prayers tend to focus almost exclusively with asking the Lord to relieve our outward circumstances. Now remember, remember now, Paul's writing to congregations that are in great difficulties, great straits, uh, much suffering and persecution. The civil magistrates have broken into people's homes and, and, and many of these congregations uh, and hauled them off to jail. Uh, believers are, are in prison for their commitment to Yeshua. And yet, whenever Paul prays and, uh, and says, I'm praying this and this and this for you, he never even mentions these outward circumstances. He doesn't say, I'm praying the Lord will prevent the civil magistrates from taking any more of you off to jail. No. He doesn't pray for their protection. He doesn't pray against suffering. What does he pray for? Here's an example. Look at Ephesians 3.16. I pray that out of his glorious riches, God may strengthen uh, you with power through his spirit in your inmost being. He's praying for them to be strengthened in their inmost being. Uh, he's He's saying if your life is broken and all things are wrong, but your spirit is strong, then you move out into the world with strength. But if everything in your life is going fine, all your outward circumstances, they're doing well, but your spirit is crushed, you move out into the world with weakness. Do you see how important your inner being is? So on the overhead, ask yourself today, am I more concerned to deposit grace in my spirit than I am to deposit money in my bank account? If you're not, the book of Proverbs says you're a fool. So on the overhead, that's number one, the priority of the inner life. And number two, now let's look at the complexity of the inner life. What do you do to keep your inner life from deteriorating? What causes uh, a crushed spirit? Uh, Why do our emotions and our feelings seem to get so out of control? Why do we get so downcast sometimes? Why do we sometimes lose all passion for life? Why do we struggle with with this? What's, What's our problem? And the biblical answer is this. It's complicated. 
<laughs> the Bible's understanding of human nature, the understanding of what goes wrong uh, within you, is far more nuanced uh, and multifaceted uh, and multidimensional than any other system of thought or philosophy or psychology or religion. It's far more nuanced and complex than any secular counseling model uh, or any book on dependency or what's wrong with us, uh, any theory on how to have emotional health or how to have a happy life. You read all these books uh, and theories and models, and compared to the Bible, they're one-dimensional. They're reductionistic. Uh, uh, They boil everything down to one or two causes. They're too simple-minded and simplistic. They're not savvy. Uh, They're not wise. The Bible gives you the most fully nuanced and most fully complex assessment of all. What can go wrong and lead to despondency uh, and a crushed spirit? So let's look at five potential root causes discussed in these passages from Proverbs. First of all, this is on the overhead. A crushed spirit may have a physical aspect. Look, for example, at Proverbs 14, verse 30. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but passion rots the bones. Uh, The word here for passion literally means a hot feeling. It can refer to anger, uh, bitterness, envy, fear. And this verse is giving us a very nuanced and sophisticated understanding of the relationship of your body to your emotions. Emotional unhealth leads to physical unhealth. It rots the bones. It causes, over time, disintegration, deterioration. And the implication is that since the body and the emotions are united, then bodily sickness can sometimes lead to emotional unhealth. If you're tired, if you're not eating right, if you've got a chemical imbalance, there can be a physical aspect of why you have a crushed spirit. So, for example, this is actually true. If you're low on thyroid... Your thyroid hormone is not working properly. It could ultimately lead to suicidal thoughts. You may say, well, that's all in your head. Yeah, of course it's in your head. <laughs> the crushed spirit is in your head. But that doesn't make, it, doesn't make it any less real. So the point is, you lose desire to live because something is wrong with your body. In this particular example. Uh, you've got a crushed spirit. And in one sense, it doesn't matter what the cause is. And one of the causes can be in in the physical, medical realm. There's a physical aspect to what goes on in your inner being, on the overhead. Secondly, there's an emotional, relational aspect. Look at Proverbs 12, 25. An anxious heart weighs a man down, but a kind word cheers him up. This is saying you sometimes need an outside word of love, uh, of kindness. You need support. You sometimes don't need medicine. Sometimes there's nothing wrong with you physically. Sometimes uh, you don't need therapy. Uh, You don't need an answer. You don't need a complicated uh, reflection. You just need love and kindness. Because we have an emotional, relational nature, we sometimes just need to be held in someone's arms. You need a shoulder to cry on. You need intimacy. You need support. Because you have an emotional, relational nature. On the overhead, third, there's not just a physical aspect uh, to what goes on inside of us or an emotional, relational aspect of what can go wrong on the inside. But third, there's also a moral aspect. Look at Proverbs 28.1. The wicked man flees, though no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. But by the way, this is a quote from Leviticus 26, where the Lord says, if you disobey me, you'll flee, though no one pursues. (laughs) 
Look how nuanced this is. It's talking about your conscience. It's talking about guilt. It's talking about what can go wrong on the inside in your spirit, in your mind, in your emotions, if you know you're not living right. If you know you're not living up to standards. If you feel guilt, if you feel shame, if you feel like a failure in any way. But look how nuanced this is. It doesn't say you flee when somebody pursues. It says you flee when no one pursues. Guilt just generalizes, makes you paranoid. Uh, Your sinfulness gives you a guilty conscience. A sense, there's something wrong with me. So you you not, not only feel guilty for things you ought to feel guilty for, but you also feel guilty for things perhaps you shouldn't feel guilty for. So, for example, someone criticizes you, you feel assaulted, you feel attacked, you've got a bad conscience, you make a small mistake, and you feel like a total failure. You've got a bad conscience. There's a moral aspect to why you have a crushed or a wounded spirit. There's a conscience aspect. On the overhead, so there can be a medical aspect, uh, an emotional, relational aspect, uh, a conscience or a moral aspect. Uh, and, and, and you realize how wrong it would be if you treat a crushed spirit that's basically a physical problem as if it were a moral problem. And now number four, there's what I call an existential or, or experiential aspect. Look at Proverbs 14, 13. Even in laughter, the heart is sad, and the end of joy is grief. Now, now the way this is normally read is to say, sometimes some people are, are laughing and seemingly having fun, but down deep they're sad. Or they're putting on a happy face, trying to forget their troubles, but deep down they're really sad. So although they're trying to be happy, in the end, they're still grieving. But notice it doesn't say, for some people, even in the midst of laughter, the heart is sad. No. Rather, this is an absolute statement. And all the commentators on this verse, they say, we must not relativize this. We must realize how profound what this verse is saying. This is true on some level for all or or most people. Why? Why? Do you not realize there's an existential angst that comes from deep down within the human heart? Everyone knows that all parties and celebrations eventually end. All the joy in the world eventually ends in grief. Here are some examples. Here's the happy family sitting around the kitchen table. And yet the reality of our finite mortal life is that one of these members will eventually see... Every other member, dead. Death ends everything. Everything your heart wants out of life in this world will eventually be taken from you. Your health will be taken from you as you age. Your loved ones will be taken from you. Everything in this world will eventually be taken from you. It'll be gone. And this proverb is saying, deep down, you know this is true, even though you don't want to think about it. There's a ground note of sadness that you cannot overcome. Now, secular people, they say, I don't believe in creation. Uh, I don't believe, I I believe we're here as an accident of evolution. That when you're dead, you're dead, that's it. You rot, that's it, it's over, you don't go on. So have fun for the the few years you, you happen to be here. But think about it. For the secular person, if your origin is insignificant and your destiny is insignificant, Uh, which means someday no one will remember you or anything you ever did. If your origin 
is insignificant and your destiny is insignificant, then your person, then your present finite life is also insignificant. So unless you have some way of dealing with this philosophically, with this uh, issue of the meaning of life, unless you have some way of, of ascribing significance to the daily things that you do, you're going to have this ground note of sadness that underlies everything. Beneath all your laughter, you'll be sad. Because you know that all joy eventually ends in grief. This is a philosophical existential problem. What the secular existential philosophers call the absurdity of life, which they say results in in nausea. So to overcome this, you need a way to deal with death. If you're not able to deal with your idea of death, if you're not able to overcome uh, your fear of it, if you're not able to find some way of facing death, up to, and nonetheless, to still ascribe meaning to your life, to the things that you're doing, then you're going to, it's, going, it's going to lead you to have a crushed spirit. So number one, there's a physical, medical cause for a crushed spirit. Number two, an emotional, relational cause. Number three, a moral cause. Number four, there's existential, philosophical cause. And now finally, five, there's a faith or spiritual cause. Now notice how doctors only want to talk about the medical, physical problems, causes. They don't want to talk about philosophy or morality. And friends don't want to talk to you about medicine. They just want to love you. And religious, religious people, well, we turn everything into a moral cause, right, of guilt or uh, of unconfessed sin, lack of penance. So we say, are you downcast? Are you depressed? Well, have you claimed all the promises? Have you confessed all known sin? Are you having a daily quiet time? Are you praying? Are you thanking God? Are you reading your three chapters a day? Are you doing everything right? Check, check, check. Checking off the checklist. Religious people tend to turn everything into a moral issue. Notice, though, that all these methods and interpretations and analyses by themselves are reductionistic. They reduce everything to one cause. And people into self-esteem, what do they say? Everything's 100% emotional and relational. And people who think we're just a body... They say it's all physical, but none of them are right because it's never so one-dimensional, so simplistic. There's a physical aspect to a crushed spirit, but not only a physical aspect. There's an emotional aspect, a moral aspect, an existential aspect, and finally a faith, spiritual aspect. Look at Proverbs fifteen thirteen: A happy heart makes the face cheerful, but heartache crushes the spirit. Now, in English, this word heart when we say the word heart in English, it means your emotions uh, versus your head, which is your, your, your thinking, your, your reason. So we think that the spirit, which seems to be emotional passion, which is why you could have a crushed spirit, uh, this appears to be a synonym for the heart. But no, that's not how the Bible uses the Hebrew word lev, uh, the Hebrew word for heart. In the Bible, the heart means your entire inner being. Uh, it, mean, it means your core commitments, things you most fundamentally trust, Uh, the things you most fundamentally love, the things you most fundamentally are living for and put your hope in. That's why Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And the word longing means a desire from the very depths of your heart. Now, when your heart is set on something, and it will always be set on something, You've got to set your heart on something as your ultimate hope, uh, your ultimate trust, the thing you're looking for uh, to to really make yourself happy, 
really make yourself feel significant. Uh, the thing you say, if I have that, then my life means something. Then I know I'm somebody. Then I know I'm all right. You've got to put your heart on something because that's how God made us. And this proverb is telling you, if you put your heart on something in the most fundamental way, and if, and if any problem happens to it, anything threatens it, in any way it's deferred, you won't even want to live. You'll be crushed in spirit. So, for example, uh, you're dating someone, and you start to really love them, and then they break up with you. It'll create sorrow, uh, even great sorrow. But if romance and having someone love you is your ultimate hope, if you believe you're no one unless someone loves you, if you look at someone and say, you're my fundamental hope, uh, uh, and that you the things that you're the thing that makes me know I'm okay, uh, and then they, they break up with you, you won't even want to live. Heartache creates a crushed spirit. A bad conscience creates a crushed spirit. Existential angst creates a crushed spirit. But go into any Barnes & Noble or, or Amazon web search, and you'll never find a book on how complex you really are. Every book on emotional health, every book on counseling, uh, every book on, on psychology, it's going to reduce you. It's going to try to oversimplify you. Because some people think all you are is basically a body. That's basically what you are, they think. They don't believe in a soul or they discount your soul. So they want to deal with every problem of your inner life physically. So they say, eat better, exercise, rest, take this vitamin, uh, take this pill. And some people say, you're really your emotions. Your deepest feelings is the real you. Not your conscience, not your beliefs, but your emotions. So we just have to non-judgmentally support everybody and encourage them to follow their feelings and affirm them in whatever choice they make, whatever identity they want to have. But you're not just your body, and you're not just your emotions. You're not just your conscience. You're not just your will. You're not just your thinking. And in psychology, you have, you have all these different uh, theories. You have object relations theory uh, and cognitive therapy and psychoanalysis. And unlike the Bible, every one of them is reductionistic because you're not mainly a body. You're not mainly your emotions or mainly your conscience or mainly any one thing. You're made in the image of God. And God's image is stamped on every aspect of your being. And therefore, unless you're living with every aspect of your being before God, you're going to have despondency. You're going to have out-of-control emotions. You're going to have despair. You're going to have a crushed spirit that you're not going to be able to remedy. And you've got these self-help books, and you go to a counselor, and you listen to people tell you the way to emotional health, and they'll always be too simple. They'll ultimately be foolish. When I read these popular books, I compare them to the Bible, I want to say in the overhead what Hamlet said to her, his friend Horatio. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, that are dreamt of in your philosophy. <laughs> So on the overhead, if, if you're going to be wise, you've got to see, that number one, the priority of the inner life. Number two, the complexity of the inner life. And then number three, the solitude of the inner life. Proverbs 14, verse 10. Each heart knows its own bitterness, and no one can share its joy. 
You say, wait a minute, I've got friends. They can share my joy. I've got people who understand me. But here's what this is really saying. Your inner life, uh, the movements and the motions of your heart are so complex and so inward and so hidden that there's an irreducible, unavoidable solitude about human life. No one will completely understand you and the inner workings of your heart. They're going to end up doing the same thing to you that you do to them. You're going to think, think you understand them. You're going to put them in a category, in a box, and you're going to say, oh, that's just like what happened to me, or that's just like what happened to so-and-so. No, it's not. This proverb is saying you're so unique and so hidden and so inward that in the end, no one will fully understand you, no human being. So there's inevitably this certain degree of solitude, of aloneness uh, in your life. No one, not even the people closest to you, will completely understand you. And you can sense that. And at one level, it's very disappointing. But it's inevitable, so we have to come to terms with it. So don't be shocked at being misunderstood. (laughs) And likewise, we don't even understand ourselves. Look at Proverbs 16, verse 2. All a man's ways seem innocent to him, but the motives are weighed by the Lord. The Lord knows your heart even more than you do. You don't don't have an objective view of your own motives. And too often you give yourself the benefit of the doubt when you shouldn't. But you 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 don't fully discern your own inner life. You don't see yourself as fully as God alone can see you. That's why only he can weigh the motives of your heart. So on one level, you're alone. There's no human being who can walk with you everywhere you go. There's no human being who can help you interpret everything you're going through. But here's what this means on the overhead. If God is only someone you believe in, if he's an abstraction, if he's not your friend, if the Lord isn't someone you know personally, if he's not someone you have a personal relationship with, if you don't understand, if you don't sometimes have a sense of God really being with you, putting his love and his truth palpably on your heart, if you don't have this intimate, personal relationship with Yeshua, you are utterly alone in the universe. You're absolutely alone in this world. And we are not made to live in that kind of isolation. We cannot survive in that isolation without the love and the intimacy and the kinship and the relationship of Messiah. Yeshua is the only one who can walk with you through every dark valley, including the valley of the shadow of death. He's the only one who can fully know and understand you. He's the only one. If you don't have him... You are ultimately alone and without hope. Now, it's not enough just to be good and moral, or even just enough to, be, to, to believe in Yeshua in some general way. If you don't have him as a personal friend, if you don't have intimate, a personal relationship with him, and a sense, sense of him really dealing with you, you're utterly alone. On the overhead, if you have a crushed spirit, you need to understand the priority of the inner life and the complexity of the inner life and the solitude of the inner life without Yeshua. And then number four, finally, how can you heal your crushed spirit? 
If you've been following these first three points, you'll see how hard it is to heal a crushed spirit. Because as we've seen, we need a word from the outside, a kind word. We cannot heal ourselves. We need someone from the outside to come in with love. And yet, we're also, we also just said that no one really understands you. We've said, we've got a conscience, maybe for some of you, uh, years of therapy. <laughs> and people can go to therapy for years and years and be told, stop feeling guilty for everything. Don't let others put a guilt trip on you. Don't feel guilty. Uh, you know, there's no need for you to feel guilty. But guess what? It doesn't work. After years and years of therapy, you, just, you feel just as guilty. Because even when no one is pursuing you, you flee. There's something indelible in each of us where we, where we say to ourselves, I'm just not right. I'm not living up. I'm not doing what I ought to do. So what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about your existential angst? And how are you going to stop your heart from putting all its trust and its ultimate hope in things that you can lose? Well, in fitting with our congregation's namesake, the secret is the Etz Chaim, the tree of life. The Bible talks about the tree of life way back in Genesis. talks about it here in Proverbs, as we've noted. And then finally in the book of Revelation, the end of the Bible. So apart from Genesis, Genesis and Revelation, there's nowhere else in the whole Bible the tree of life is discussed except here in Proverbs. In the beginning, the tree of life was in the middle of the Garden of Eden, in paradise. And it represents not just eternal life, but also fullness of life. Absolute fulfillment of your deepest desires. Your creative desire to accomplish things. Your aesthetic desire for beauty. Your romantic desire for love. Your epistemological desire for knowledge. uh, Your spiritual desire to know and walk with the Lord. The tree of life represents absolute fulfillment of all these desires in a godly way. But... The book of Genesis also tells us we lost the tree of life. At the end of Genesis 3, we read there was a flaming sword that turns and sweeps back and forth, keeping us from the tree of life. Because when we turn from the tree of life to be our own masters and our own saviors and our own lords, we decided we want to be in charge of our own life. And therefore, we lost the tree of life. What does that mean? Look at Proverbs thirteen twelve. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is, the, is a tree of life. Now, you can read this to sim- simply to mean that when you really have your heart set on something, it's a disappointment if you don't get it. But it's talking about something different. What it's really saying is that our deepest longings, the things we really set our hearts on, We'll never really be fulfill- we'll never really fulfill our ultimate longings because what we're really looking for in everything we do, we're ultimately looking for that tree of life. So for example, you get into a new career and you're so excited about it, or you get into a new relationship, uh, or you go, you go on a vacation and you travel to a new place. These experiences all promise something they can never actually deliver. And the overhead, one Hebrew commentator writes this. The tree of life image in the Bible is not simply referring to eternal life. Yes, in the Bible, the tree of life is an image of immortal, eternal life. But also, it's an image of irretrievable loss. 
It's an image of cosmic nostalgia. A longing for something we remember, yet never had. And all the music you listen to, to lift you up out of this world, you're looking for a song you remember, but never heard. In love, you're looking for arms that you remember, but never had. That's what the Bible is saying. That's what the tree of life is. And unless you understand that, that what you're really seeking and everything you're looking for is this tree of life, if you don't understand that, you're not going to be wise. And the overhead, C.S. Lewis, in his inevitable way, puts it like this. Most people, he says, if they really learned how to look into their own hearts, would know that, that they do want and want acutely something that, that cannot be had in this world. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that, that is, excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. He says, I'm not talking about what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or trips or so on. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There's always something we've grasped at in that first moment of longing that just fades away in the reality. Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in this universe from which we now feel cut off, our longing to be on the inside of some door we've always seen from the outside. This is no near, near mere neurotic fantasy, but the truest index of our real situation. Now, once you get a bit older and start to realize that every single thing you look for to give yourself a sense of satisfaction never really delivers, you can have several different reactions. First, you can be really foolish. You can say, well, then I need a new city or a new job or a new spouse. It just constantly change things all the time. Or second, you can just get mad at yourself and blame yourself, say, I'm a failure. There's something wrong with me. Or third, you can get cynical at the world. You can say, I shouldn't really expect anything out of life. But in all three of these cases, if that's your reaction, you're going to have a crushed spirit. So what's the solution? As you know, the New Covenant scriptures continually say Yeshua died on a tree. It repeatedly says, referencing uh, this tree, all the time they, they hung him on a tree. He was nailed to a tree. He died on the tree. And they're using this name for, uh, for the cross. By using this name of tree, it's so significant. In the Garden of Eden, God came to Adam and Eve, and he says, Obey me about the tree. Don't eat from it, and you'll live. They didn't. Centuries later, Yeshua comes into a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And God says to him, Obey me about the tree. And he did. But look at the difference. To the first Adam, God said, obey me about the tree and you'll live. But to the second Adam, Yeshua, God says, if you obey me about the tree, if you go to the tree, if you go to the cross and do what I'm asking you to do, you'll be crushed. Crushed. Crushed in body. Crushed in spirit. Crushed into hell. And he did it. In Psalm 22, which Yeshua quotes from the cross, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a place down in verse 14 of Psalm 22 in the overhead where the psalmist says this, Psalm 22, 14. My heart has turned to wax. It's melted within me. 
There's the ultimate crushed spirit. Yeshua, he lost his ultimate hope. He put all his hope in his heavenly father. He's the only person in the history of the world who put all his hope in his heavenly father who lost his father. His father abandoned him on the cross. The father forsook him. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was crushed in spirit. He was infinitely crushed. He suffered all that physical and emotional and spiritual agony. Why? For you. And for you. And for you. And for you. And for me. For us. To pay the penalty for our sin. That we deserved to pay. He paid it on your behalf as your substitute. As the sacrifice lamb. So that if we apply his blood on the doorpost of our heart. He then stands guard. And protects us. Protects you. From the angel of death. And the overhead. This great 17th century English poet. Uh, George Herbert. He puts it like this. In this famous poem called The Sacrifice. Which he depicts Yeshua speaking from the cross. And Yeshua says this. All ye who pass by. Behold and see. Man stole the fruit. Now I must climb the tree. A tree of life for all. But only me. The cross was a tree of death. But because he climbed that tree of death. We now have the tree of life. The tree of death was turned by Yeshua into the tree of life. The cross was a tree of death for him. And therefore became a tree of life for all who would repent and put their trust in him. Now to the degree that you let that truth melt your heart. To the degree you actually see, really see what Yeshua did for you. To the degree you rejoice in that. To the degree uh, you, you orient your heart towards that. And it just melts your heart. Uh, and at the, at the thought of his love, to that degree, you will experience what, what Tolkien calls joy beyond the walls of the world, more poignant than grief. There's a joy that's a foretaste of the tree of life. Uh, and, and when you take in uh, the, the gospel, uh, and that's what this is, uh, and use it on your spirit, that's what you need. That's the ultimate kind word. That's the ultimate good word. As we said, you need to get rid of your isolation. You need need emotional connection. And yet, no one understands you. But the gospel is that the only eyes in the universe that can see you to the bottom love you to the skies. Use that on your emotions. Use that on your relational aspect. Use that on your conscience. I'm reminded of the story uh, of this old saintly woman. She's on her deathbed. Her whole family is gathered around her. And the kids are saying, poor, poor mom. I think she's dead. I think she's gone. And at that moment, all of a sudden, she opens her eyes. And she looks up. Thank you. (laughs) And she says, she looks up and she says, who calls me poor? I'm rich in Messiah. And I'll stand before him bold as a lion. And at that, she breathed her last. And one of her children, named Samuel Gandhi, later on wrote this amazing hymn on the overhead that goes like this. 
Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. The Lord God knowest none. Yeshua took the tree of death so that you could have the tree of life. Use that on your emotions, on your conscience, on your way of thinking, on your worldview. And that will get you rid of your fear of death. But most of all, use it on the hope of your heart. Love the people and the things you love, but love them, love them through them to realize that, that the ultimate song, the ultimate beauty, the ultimate arms is the tree of life that you are going to have one day. And to get the gospel deep down into every aspect of your life, you need friends, uh, you need mentors, you need counselors, you need accountability partners. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it like this in his famous book, uh, Life Together, on the overhead. He says, it's possible that by God's grace, a person may make breakthrough to certainty, into new life, into the cross, and, and fellowship without the benefit of confessing to a brother or a sister. It's possible that a person may never know what it is to doubt his own forgiveness in Messiah. But most of us cannot make these assertions. When confession of sin, when opening up the heart, is made in the presence of a fellow believing brother or sister, the last stronghold of justification, of self-justification, is abandoned. The sinner surrenders. He gives his heart to God and finds the forgiveness of all his sin and the fellowship of Yeshua and his brethren. The expressed, acknowledged sin has now lost all of its power. It's been revealed and judged as sin. And as the confession of my heart to a brother or sister ensures against self-deception, so too the assurance of forgiveness becomes fully certain to me only when it's spoken by a brother or sister in Yeshua's name. Put your hope in Yeshua. Take hold of the gospel. Work it into one another's lives as well as into your own life. And then you'll know power in your inmost being that will overcome a crushed spirit and give you the tree of life. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's stand and pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, for these teachings today on a crushed spirit, on our inner man, our inner life about our, our despondency and our, and our crushed spirit can have physical causes, emotional, relational causes, moral conscience, guilt causes, existential causes, about the meaning of life, finiteness of life, and faith, spiritual causes. Lord, because we're made in your image, we're called to live every aspect of our life before you, or else we're going to have despondency. We're going to have a crushed spirit if we don't. And Lord, Yeshua if I only just believe in you in some abstract way, if you're not my close, personal, intimate friend, if I don't know you and relate to you personally, then I am alone in the universe, and I'll never cure my crushed spirit. So Lord Yeshua, help me today to know you personally, intimately. Help me to sense your presence palpably on my heart and to commune and spend time with you, worshiping you daily, in spirit and in truth. You're the only one, Lord, who, who can walk with me in my times of darkness, in my dark night of the soul. Yeshua, the only one who can walk with me through the valley of the shadow of death and bring me into your light and love and life. Lord Yeshua, bring me to the tree of life. 
Yeshua, you were crushed on the cross, on that tree, for my iniquities, for my sins. Thank you for your sacrifice for me. You turned the tree of death into a tree of life for all who embrace you, Yeshua. Yeshua, I give my heart to you. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Shabbat shalom.